0: Welcome back, Journeers, to another episode of Reed Keeper's Journey. In the last episode, Xylon, the Hyperborean that's been traveling with Mike, Steve, and Bear, showed that he's Trindok, the person they've been looking for, and then he disappeared. This episode explores the aftermath of that event, and we also find out what happened to the king's high priest after Trindok took his voice away. Now, back to the story. Chapter 43. All was lost. The thought kept repeating through Caracalla, the king's high priest's mind, as he fled down the corridor, not realizing that he had shed a slipper in his panic to escape the throne room. One bare foot smacked the cold stone floor as he ran. How could this have happened? He was the high priest, the king. He controlled the king's ear and therefore directed a nation. But what was he now? His voice was gone. His voice was gone. He tried again to howl as he ran, but only air passed his lips. All was lost. He had witnessed Trendok's return. He had seen the awful power with his own eyes. The impossibility of the moment screamed at him. Trendok didn't exist. And Caracalla knew the tree-lover's witch-queen was a charlatan. All of the Anani, the so-called Watchers of the land were a falsehood from the depths of the infernal. Not that he believed in the infernal either, but Trindock had looked him in the eyes and with a flick of his wrist had stolen his voice. It was too much to absorb. He wiped away tears and snot as he ran. His life was, is, devoted to a faith he did not believe, but in the span of one breath, belief had become flesh. He fled to his chambers, trying to scream as silence chased him. Caracalla rushed past his personal guard, heedless of how it may appear to the imbecile, and slammed the door. It didn't matter what the idiot thought. Like all those who guarded the Trindonian priests, they swore fealty to the Anani. They were known as the Hand of Trindok and served Trindok. but since he never showed his face, they were de facto servants of the church, known as the Ecclesia. Besides, he would remove the guard's tongue if he breathed the word of his panic, a thought that brought the briefest of smiles to the priest's lips. He would make them all voiceless. He leaned against the door, panting, trying to form his thoughts. Did he flee? And if so, where to? Was anywhere safe? All was lost. No, now wasn't the time to run. No, he must bring word to the Papam, the so-called voice of Trindok, and the head of the Ecclesia, or rather, his handlers, his fellow Umris, the true power of Trindonianism, But how? He couldn't speak. Fool, he thought, you can still write. First and foremost, he must explain the return of Trindock, but he needed to word it carefully and not rant. Any statement he made would, at best, be met with disbelief, at worst, with accusations of a befuddled mind. He paced the room gnawing a thumbnail while his eyes stared at the ground and still oblivious of his one bare foot. He must write as if he were reading it himself, and before they arose, defeat any arguments against such an outlandish statement as the return of Trendok. Best start with the monster's traveling companions. What was that fool's name who spoke to him in the confessional? Leander. His feet stopped. Yes. Those who arrived with Trendok, they were the key. Already composing the message in his mind, Caracalla rushed to his stylus and paper. But as the priest began to scratch out his message, the room's air grew still. He reached to dip his stylus in the ink pot and stopped. The air seemed cold? No, not cold, as much as it lacked heat, and it was laced with a stench of decay like the thick air of the sewers that stuck to everything in the early morning hours. He looked up to see an air of oppression descend on the room like a dark mist. Perspiration oozed across his upper lip as his mouth went dry. His grip tightened on the thin metal stylus and his eyes scanned the room. Trindac was back. The dagger strapped to his ankle felt hot as his skin grew cold. Could he even reach it in time? Could an Anani even be killed? His mind ran through all of what he knew of the Watchers. It was shamefully limited, considering his life was devoted to the worship of one of them. Something flickered just past his vision, and he spun, brandishing his stylus above his head, the metal slick in his hand. His living quarters were gone. He now stood in a vast room of dark gray stone walls. The room was not merely bigger than his chambers, but larger in scale. The table at the far end stood at shoulder height, and he could see that sitting in one of the chairs, his feet would miss the ground. Shelves lined the walls with countertops full of glass beakers and what looked like measuring instruments, though his sight was limited from his lower vantage point, and he refused to get on his tiptoes to get a better look at them. Maps and sea charts covered the walls, and a far-seeing scope, like the military used, stuck out of a window pointing at the sky. Shattered tubes and beakers were strewn across the floor and the huge table. Among the wreckage, a model ship, broken in two, lay on the floor, part of it protruding from a busted bottle. Only one race made those ships in a bottle. Gigantus. His bladder threatened to release at the thought of it. But they were gone. They left centuries ago on a fool's mission to find gods or some nonsense. He never really believed they were actually large, just formidable fighters and thinkers. But the scale of the room left no doubt. These gigantists, also known as the Lysiphon, the people of the water, were in reality enormous creatures. He looked at the pin clutched over his head and tossed it away in disgust. He yanked the dagger from his ankle sheath. I will never understand how easily you creatures believe what you see. The female slipped into the room with a luxurious grace. She dwarfed him in size, reaching almost three spans high and dressed in a translucent, flowing material. No. The priest mouthed voicelessly. Do you like what you see? This flesh is a wonderful feeling. Humans always made me feel so cramped. She stretched her hands above her head, exposing the shaved skin beneath her arms, a thing Caracalla had never seen had never imagined. I feel like I have room to breathe in this body. I mean, if I required oxygen. She drifted across the room and placed herself in an enormous chair at the table. I asked you a question, priest. Do you like what you see? Did you expect me to have snakes for legs? She pulled the thin blue material back, sliding delicate fingers along smooth, pale skin, displaying her ankle and thigh. There was so much of her, so much skin. Her presence loomed over not only his physical form, but also his mind. He stood, frozen, fear and desire washed over him. But there was something else, something other than her beauty. Her eyes were wrong, as if someone watched from behind them, and there was a, a smell like something stale and unclean. In his climb to become one of the humorous, Carcala had spent hours dedicating babies to the faith. It was laborious work dipping those mewling and often screaming children into the sacred water and staining their foreheads with black ink that represented the betrayal of Trindock. But one thing he loved was the smell of the children. They smelled, unstained. The gigantus that towered over him, even while she sat, gave off the exact opposite smell as those innocent children. Bile rose in his throat. Answer me, priest. Karkala's insides nodded. He opened his mouth to say, Yes, yes, all that I am cries, yes. Agony ripped through his heart. He needed to answer, but he couldn't. And the longer he didn't respond the more it tore at his insides. His jaws creaked as he strained his mouth wider, hoping that somehow a word would escape. Oh, that's right. You are mute. Never mind. Carcala collapsed, the need to speak gone. I didn't bring you here to answer questions, nor to feel your eyes slither over me. She flipped her dress back to cover her leg. You are to serve me. Come here. Tarkala was pulled to his feet on wooden legs. He did not remember falling and staggered over to the giant. She grasped his head with a single hand, exposing his neck as long fingers wrapped around his skull. Now, let's see. What did he do to you? Hmm. Interesting. He didn't do anything to your larynx. He only gave you a mental block. You can speak just fine, little priest. You just don't believe you can speak. Why would he do that? Why not rip the whole throat out or burn the vocal cords? Unless he hoped you would repent and he could heal you, as it were? Bah! What a waste. Stop sweating. I'm not going to kill you. So close to her, the smell was overpowering. But so also was her presence. He wanted to be wrapped up in her, to have her smoothness pressed close to him, but he also longed to be away from her, to run screaming to safety, if such a place existed. A moment ago, he had stood in his chambers. You are to be the voice of my masses. You will be my errand and the messenger of my judgment. You will be my hand that stabs that bastard Trindock. She pulled his face close to her, just like his father used to do before punching him. I will give you the words to speak. I will give you power to be believed. You will tell them Trindok is a false prophet, a liar, and that you speak for the true Anani. She lifted his chin, exposing his neck and bringing him up to his tiptoes. She drove her fingernail into the hollow of his throat, Fire erupted in his mind and before his eyes. His skin crackled as he stared through the flames and into her eyes, which were no longer blue but completely black. She grinned, a mouth too large for her face and teeth far sharper than a moment ago. She spoke softly as she used her fingernail to carve a symbol onto his throat. She was called Amabilia, and you may use that name for me. His feet kicked at the ground like those of a hanged man trying to find purchase. Many will believe you. Those of weak wills may obey you, but the key is to believe. No, you must have more than belief. You must know without a hint of doubt that you will be obeyed. Tears that he cried steamed off his burning cheeks. I name you Alemus, and you will speak for me. And I will hand you the five kingdoms. I will quench your thirst for power. But do not fail me, little priest. She pulled him closer and kissed his lips. Elemas screamed. The guard knelt over him, gently shaking him awake. Elemus screamed again and scuttled away from the big Hyperborean on all fours. Are you harmed, good priest? Elemus wiped the blur from his eyes and tried to get his bearings. The guard looked shocked but didn't move towards him, and he seemed to be carefully keeping his eyes from the dark smear on the floor that ran to his robes. Had he soiled himself? Elemus turned his head and spat. The fetid taste of vomit coated his mouth. It felt as if his entire body rejected her touch or what she had done to him. What had she done to him? The priest stood. A tremor ran through his legs, but he remained steady. He wiped his face, leaving tears, snot, and bits of vomit on his sleeve, careless of the mess it made. He had already decided to burn the robes. He could still smell her on him. Or was that his own defecation? It didn't matter. The robes would burn, and perhaps everything else in the entire room as well. Are you well, good priest? The guard asked again. He looked concerned and more than a little frightened. "'He is right to be scared,' Elias thought. "'The guard had seen him shame himself "'and had touched him, touched an Ameris. "'His life was forfeit.' "'Yes,' Elimas said, shocked to hear himself speak. "'It felt like centuries. "'His hand shot to his throat. "'His fingers played across the brand "'on the hollow of his throat. "'I am well.' "'His voice sounded, it felt, different. "'It was a deeper tone,' but there was a force behind it. Like his dog of a father, he hated repeating himself. He considered it a sign of weakness. People should hang on his every word or risk punishment. This voice only had to say something once. This voice was to be obeyed. He smiled. He made sure to picture the image in his mind perfectly. He had faith in the voice. He believed in the one that gave him the voice and he knew obedience to him was not a choice. He spoke one word. Jump! The guard leapt to his feet. He rushed past Lemus, striving with all his might to reach the window on the far end of the room. Lemus turned and walked to his mirror. The tall reflective glass was one of his prized possessions. He didn't need to look to know that the guard leapt to his death without a sound, or hesitation. Elemus knew obedience to him was unquestionable. He lifted his chin and examined the mark on his throat. A small, intricate circle stood out on his skin, the width of two fingers, and full of lines of symbols that he did not know. It did not look like a scar or a burn. It looked exactly like what it was, a symbol carved into the hollow of his throat. He would bathe. He turned his chin, examining his scar. He would call for his servants to burn his clothes and to clean the mess on the floor. And then he would command them to forget what they had seen. He didn't need to convince the rest of the Umaris that Trendok had returned. His smile grew. He didn't need the Umaris at all. And they may come to an unfortunate end. He had not decided yet. But the prospect of being the most powerful Hyperborean in the kingdom sounded delicious. Chapter 44 Michael strode through the palace corridors, pressing a blood-soaked rag against his cheek. His thoughts spun around his head like black leaves on the wind of a dark storm. Trindok? Trindok? This whole time? And the moment he shows his face? Poof! He's gone. He could have had his sister home a week ago. He could practically hear the Anani laughing at him. He pictured him, drinking a beer, feet kicked up on a table, and just laughing. You should have seen the look on your face, Michael. (laughs) Ha! Michael chucked the bloody rag, ignoring the wet splat it made when it struck the floor. It hadn't been doing much good, anyhow. He trailed the dryads and his friends as he fumed and bled. He caught furtive glances from his sister, who was obviously staying as far away from him as possible. She probably thought he was mad at her, which he was. She should be safe in the tree, but no, she was here and in danger. It's not like he was surprised to see her after consistent dreams of her running to him. Those dreams had started after the battle with the Exilthaneo. Was there a connection there? Honestly, he didn't know. He didn't even know if they were dreams or premonitions or telepathy. And right now, he didn't care. Back before he had this wonderful telltale sign of bleeding from the face when he lost his temper, he could gauge how angry he was by how much he didn't care. Vicky told him once that he cared too much, and when he got angry, he didn't care at all, and that it kind of scared her. You know what else is a sign of not caring, Vicky? Pestering someone to open up, and when they finally do, you dump them. He swiped at his face. If he kept bleeding like this, he was going to need some orange slices. His eyes did their best to burn holes into Zoe's back. If that crazy redhead had known that Xylon was actually Trendok this whole time, there was going to be some serious hell to pay. Wait, Michael shouted when the group continued past his room. They stopped. He strode past them and marched through his door. You guys in here, we need to talk. Zoe tried to follow, but he spun on her. Did you know? The redhead warrior took a step back. Whoa there, Mikey, there's no way that she... Steve tried to interject. Because if you did, his hand unconsciously drifted towards a sword propped up against the wall, and he heard a dozen long blades slide from their scabbards. The sound infuriated him. If the Amazons wanted a fight, he was happy to oblige them. He clasped the hilt, and his mind opened. Life. Everything was life everything was connected there was no one thing it was all one thing tied together and made up of life he knew now why his senses retreated from the unthing it wasn't part of the singularity it was absent it was it was anti-life a hole in the fabric of creation it was an abomination knowledge filled him and with it he saw something else Something without form. Something that ebbed and flowed in and around all through the life. It was like the breath of God. Michael reached for it with his mind and seized it. The room shivered. Something tottered and smashed onto the floor behind him. With their weapons drawn, he saw fear seep out of the dryads. He tasted it. It was wonderful. Enough! The smithy's shout punctured his mind. She can't hide anything from you. Might as well ask a firebrand to hide its heat. Michael dropped his sword and gripped his head. He tried to suck air back into his lungs. It felt like something punched him in the brain. He steadied himself and took another ragged breath. No, Zoe said, turned and left the room, followed by her warriors. What's wrong with you? Stacy shouted at him. Stacy, please. Michael said, still holding his head. He stumbled to a couch and sat down heavily, exhausted with the evaporation of his rage. The sword hilt jammed itself into his side. I deserve that. I'm sorry. Well, you better get a grip, or Mike, you're going to get us all killed. Stacy loomed over him. She didn't look like his little sister. She looked like Barbara, their mother. Barbara had the same threatening gaze when Michael had broken a kid's nose. He had lost his temper then, too, but he argued it was for good reason. But it didn't matter to her that a 10-year-old bully had picked on her 6-year-old son. She only cared about his anger issues, and if he didn't watch himself and get a grip on his anger, he was going to turn out exactly like his dad. Well, Barbara, you were right. I guess I'm just like dear old dad. But was he? All in all, he felt like he did a pretty good job keeping his emotions in check. But since the woman with the eyes had marked him, it was a losing battle. I know. I know, I'm sorry, he repeated. Steve came to his rescue. It's not his fault, Stace. Those cuts on his face make him do crazy stuff. Look, they're not bleeding anymore. That's because he's not mad. Stacy peered at Michael's face, skeptical. She stomped off and retrieved a porcelain wash basin from the wall. When she returned, she looked like his little sister again. She produced a soft cloth from her pocket and gently began to wash his face. It's okay, but you gotta keep it together, big brother. I need you. I know, I'm sorry. You said that already. I know, I apologize. You're such a goober. She set the bowl aside and sat down next to him, placing her head on his shoulder. What do we do now? Bear asked. Michael laid his head back on the couch, pressing his palms against his eyes. I don't know. Can someone tell me... Exactly what is going on? Heather asked. That guy in the throne room was the dude we've been looking for, Steve said. Yeah, I gathered that. Well, he's been traveling with us for a week, but he called himself Zylon. Pretty cool guy, actually, Steve said. And no one recognized him? Heather asked. Michael pulled his head up and looked at Heather. No one has seen him for like a hundred years or so. And when he was with us, it wasn't like he was casting fireballs or waving his staff around like some medieval wizard. But he's still going to help us, right? Stacy asked. The hope in her voice stabbed at Michael's heart. We'll just sit here and wait, Steve said. It's not like we have any other options. It's like the tree all over again, Michael said. Heather dropped herself into a cushioned seat, looking exhausted. We may have another problem. Maybe we lost them when we got on the boat, Stacy said. Lost who? Michael asked. They're more like a what, Stacy answered. It's a long story, Heather said. Bear stood, walked over, and stuck his head out the doorway. Michael noted that he stooped a little to avoid hitting his head on the doorframe. We're going to need something to eat, he said to someone outside. Michael assumed they had guards assigned to watch them. Michael heard a mumble from outside. Bear stepped fully into the hallway, head halfway obscured by the top of the doorframe, and looked down. Now, please. The sound of someone sprinting down the hallway could be heard. The room remained silent as Bear re-entered and took a seat near one of the tall, narrow windows. What? I'm starving, he motioned to Heather. Go ahead, Heather. I didn't mean to interrupt. Heather looked at Bear and blinked as if she was really seeing him for the first time and was a little intimidated by him. Like I said, it's a long story, but I think we should begin with how we got out of the tree. I, I don't think we need to get into all that, Stacy said. Yes, we do, Heather said firmly. And Michael's going to find out anyway. It might as well be now. Find out what? Michael asked, already feeling a pit in his stomach. "Stacy, what did you do? I'm getting to it, Heather said. It's not a big deal, so don't freak out about it. She gave him a serious look. And what's done is done. I won't freak out, I promise. So we had to get out of the tree. Heather started again. Because I knew you were hurt, Stacy interjected. I I was scared for you. I was getting to that. So, we had to get out of the tree. Wait, 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 wait. Ken interjected. Are we just going to ignore the fact that there was an earthquake? That's all for this week, journeyers. Come back next week to see what strange and exciting adventures await our friends. Until then, thank you for listening and be good to one another.